Even before the COVID pandemic, disruption was endemic in many parts of our economy. The retail sector has been transformed by online shopping, our eating and travelling habits have been changed by the gig economy. Many predict that the cosy and lucrative world of professional services will soon be under siege as AI-based systems prove themselves able to do all but the most skillful work. One sector, the music industry, has already been through the U-curve of disruption and has come out of the other side. What can we learn from that journey? Who better to explain than someone who not only was on that journey, but was one of its most prominent tour guides? This is Bridges to the Future, the Big Ideas podcast, brought to you by the RSA with your host, Matthew Taylor. I'm delighted to be joined by Will Page, self-styled rock onomist and former Spotify chief economist. He's the author of an invigorating new book, Tarzan Economics. Will, how are you? Great to be here. Honoured to be part of the RSA. Fantastic. Um, there's quite a lot in the book that's autobiographical. It's one of the charms of it. So just tell us a little bit about your career journey and what you've been doing over the last few years, because that's a really important part of this story. Yeah. If I hop, skip and jump to the final words of the book, it's a message that I give school kids, students filling out UCAS forms, graduates, which is don't wait for your job description create your job description. And I really mean that. And if I look at the journey I took you know, for four years after finishing my master's in economics at the University of Edinburgh, I was a government economist working in public service. And I had a Batman lifestyle of government economics by day and music industry by night. I was working with Philadelphia hip hop acts, Brazilian funk composers, European jazz festivals, doing anything I possibly could to merge my two passions of music and economics. Now, this was a challenge because the music industry employed hundreds, thousands, hundreds and thousands of lawyers. It didn't employ one single economist. And if we go back to the noughties, everyone knows that the music industry is going through a, a raft of disruption that people are experiencing today, as you alluded to in your introduction, and was suing its way out of that mess. So it was suing consumers for file sharing, suing websites for hosting illegal files, suing internet service providers for being dumb pipes transmitting those files. So the response then was litigation, a legal mindset, you know, sue the problem out of existence and we'll get back to people buying CDs and back to people buying downloads. And I just wanted to merge these two passions to fix this problem, merge music and economics, like you called it at the start, rockonomics, and introduce a new discipline to the music industry's frame of thought and hopefully let, let it transition from the suffering to the recovering as soon as possible. So the critical moment for you, I think, comes when you think you've seen something about the music industry, about its failure to adapt. And you write to one of the key players in the industry, kind of on spec, and say, look, you know, you're getting this all wrong. And then by one of these kind of amazing life-changing moments, he comes back to you and says, come and talk to me about it. Yeah, and that key player is also a fellow of the Royal Society of the Arts. It's Adam Singer. He at the time was the chief executive of the Performing Rights Society. And just to, you know, for your listeners, just to stress that around every corner is an opportunity, and this particular corner happened to be a bus in Edinburgh, taking the bus home from work after a really boring day doing local income tax reform, not exactly the sexiest topic in the world, but there was a Financial Times sitting on the bus, and I don't usually pick up you know, strange newspapers on buses, but if it's the FT, the benefits outweigh the cost. I did my calculation. I stumbled on this article by Adam Singer on that bus, which had the headline, Digital Ants Wreck the music industry's picnic. 
what a headline. You know, somebody else was thinking about the music industry the way I was thinking about it. And this someone else happened to be a CEO. Usually it's the CEOs who are saying the opposite. And my father and mother raised me never to be shy approaching people. So I wrote him a letter to firstly correct him on some of the mistakes in the piece, but secondly applaud the vision that he was introducing. And within a couple of days, he had phoned me back at the office on the office line in government and said, would you come down to London and meet and discuss some of your thinking? So on the Women of Prayer, I traveled down to London. And to give an example of introducing a discipline like economics to an industry that never thought about economics, when I met him, he said to me, okay, first question for you, how would you price a music catalog? I have no idea, completely out of my depth, never done it before, wouldn't even know where to start. But in economics, particularly if you've spent time in the government economics service, you learn how to answer questions that you know nothing about because you can grab principles, grab tools and frame a sensible answer. So my answer in this example was to say, I would design an auction. He said, go on. He said, well, auction design is a big thing at the moment. You can have ascending price auctions, which we're used to here in the UK. If you look at how you sell flowers in Amsterdam or a fish in Israel, you can have descending price auctions where you start at the top and first in gets first out. Or you could have first price or second price open and sealed bid auctions as well to optimize for participants as opposed to the price. So there's all these things you can do in auction design to establish price and help price discovery. And he's sort of leaning back in his chair and he says to me, in 70 years, I don't think we've ever discussed auction design. Fascinating. And the rest of the day followed that same path of events of there's all this stuff that an economist can grab off the shelf and apply to a business that's never once thought about economics. And that's where I realized that economics had an opportunity to check in for business. I'm going to subvert the, kind of the order of the book to a certain extent, because I want to just ask you a bit about Spotify before we start to move into some of the kind of lessons in the book. Right at the end of the book, you have this distinction, which you then kind of backcast over your lessons, which is between builders and farmers. And what interested me about that particularly was I'm fascinated by the culture of tech firms. They seem to have very distinctive cultures of their own. Tell us something about the kind of culture of Spotify and how that evolved over the time you were there. Does that exemplify this journey you describe at the end from kind of builders to farmers? Well, firstly, I have to give a hat tip to yourself and your colleagues at the RSA for the the work you've been putting in in terms of how do we work? It's a really pertinent question, pre-pandemic and especially post-pandemic. So the last chapter definitely was influenced by, by your work, so thank you. And then when I look at tech companies in general, I just think there's this clear dividing line in a tech company of when do you belong? You know, Where in the lifespan of a tech industry do you belong? And the backstory to this was simply that, you know, in the months running up to Spotify going public, it wasn't an IPO. It's a direct listing, so you can't use language of an IPO. We did it very differently. Slack has followed a direct listing approach as well, you may be aware. And one of the earliest investors said to me, so what's that madhouse like just now? I mean, working in tech is crazy. You're working without a framework. You're designing a plane once you're in flight. And I said to him, well, it's obvious. The builders are leaving and the farmers are coming in. Just a simple quip over a coffee and a cigarette. And a few months later, I caught up with that, that investor again, and he said, your, your expression's really caught on. What expression? I don't remember saying anything that meant anything. He said, no, the, the term builders and farmers, you know, everybody's using it now. It's such a beautiful way of saying, who are you in the lifespan of a technological company? And the builders are those who build out of thin air, who produce magic and work in a crazy setting with, with, with no framework. 
they take the company up to that point of going public. Once public, once you have compliance, once you have regulation, you need the farmers to operationalize the business. <laughs> One quick example is, I remember once public, Spotify was introducing career development frameworks. And for the people who are the veterans who are there during the early days, that was just a foreign language. What do you mean career development framework? We just work. But then you have to have that kind of operational stability because you have a duty to shareholders, you have the the coverage of regulation. So it was fascinating for me to think about, you know, where in a lifespan of a tech company do you belong? Because you don't belong there forever. And I was very fortunate to work with uh, an academic called Adrian Furnham from the University of College London, a very well-regarded organizational psychologist. And they also learned from people like Adam Grant who are doing work in this space which is to try and give the reader a taxonomy to say, rather than simply say, here's one rule that will change all your lives. I really despise those business books with those clickbait headlines. There is no one rule and we're all different. So we just stop that. Here's a taxonomy to work out who you are and then let's revisit the book and apply it to your particular characteristics. Whether you're a builder, it'll mean one thing. Whether you're a farmer, it'll be another. And how culturally challenging is that? I mean, my sense would be that if you're in an insurgent company full of builders, you know, attacking the establishment, the move then to becoming the incumbent to moving to the mentality of the farmer, there must be a sense of almost bereavement loss about that shift in an organizational culture. Yeah, and that's is a beautiful way to kind of reintroduce Tars in economics because nostalgia is everywhere, right? I'm a builder, I'm an insurgent, and oh, now we have all these processes and you know frameworks that we have to comply with. Well, that means letting go of the old vine, which was setting the company up to going public and grabbing onto the new one, which is now you're a big boy in the classroom. Now you have to be an operational, stable business that investors and pension funds can put their money into. And that's just a reality check. So, you know, Tarzan economics affects everyone. It's not an old industry, new industry. It's simply realizing that things change. And at some point, you're going to have to let go of what you're holding on to and reach out to something that you're unfamiliar with. It's a fascinating journey and you see it everywhere. You see it with the, the current raft of IPOs happening just now. The culture and the companies will change. One other point just to quickly add to that, though, is not just the culture, but there's also a, a geographic element to this. I mean, we're a Swedish company. You know, I'm from Scotland, so I'm used to the same climate, you know, country with two seasons, winter and June. But still, in Sweden, you know, it's a very different work ethic and a very different society to, let's say, New York, where there's a huge operation for Spotify as well. So being British, working for a Swedish company with a huge American operation, you saw the culture clash there of just mindsets and their mannerisms. That was a fascinating observation for me. That, that's an RSA essay in its own. So, Will, one of the things I really liked about the book was that I read a lot of books which have a slightly tiresome tendency to say that there is one answer to every problem. Management consultants are particularly kind of keen on this way of viewing the world. And I think your approach much more is to say, look, being an economist has given you, and also your experience in your career, has given you a big toolkit, which can be used in a whole variety of settings. And what you're encouraging us to do is to understand the context in which we're working, and then to understand which of these tools we should use. And that applies even to this concept of tiles and economics, because that's the way you describe what's happened in the music industry, which is that 10 years were lost because the music industry was trying to hold on to the old vine at the same time as tentatively reaching out or pushing away from the new vine and instead of jumping across the divide. But then later in the book, you talk about a different context and you say this isn't a Tarzan economics context. This is a more incremental kind of space. So that's an important part of the book, isn't it? For you to say, look, have a big toolkit, but think very hard about which tool you should use in which context. Yes, and I agree with you. We we need to push back on clickbait headlines, which 
might sell lots of books in airport departure lounges, but that's not the purpose. The purpose of this book is to really help people who are going to be struggling with unfathomable scale of change as we come out of this pandemic. You know, you alluded to in the introduction, the high street was in a mess before the pandemic, and it's in a bigger mess during the pandemic. So, you know, the way that I structured the book was to think of eight principles, eight future-proof principles, you know, you know, challenges that we're going to face regardless of the tide of disruption that's gathering around our feet. These principles are always going to be staring us in the face and to help the reader tackle them. And I give you one very quick example. Chapter four is called Make or Buy. You know, a very simple trade-off that we all face, we always will face as we deal with our lives. Do I do things myself or do I employ the services of others? And I think about the great Federal Reserve banker, Alan Blinder, he once told me that the definition of capitalism is when we employ somebody else to cut our grass because we can do something more productive with our time. A brilliant, brilliant example of just summarizing what capitalism is. I like cutting grass. I like gardening. But if I employ somebody else to do that work, it's because I can do something more productive with my time. That's a great example of approaching a make or buy question. And I think you know what that chapter is really telling us is there's so much more opportunity to make it yourself now which means there's so less incentive to buy in the services of others. There's so many creator tools in this gig economy, something the RSA has explored at length, which allow you to, say, be a consultant and achieve the same level of success that you would have done had you gone and worked in a hierarchical organization. If I just give you one quick example to bring it back to music, as a staggering observation of what happened in the music industry last year, the three major record labels, which kind of dominate the business, they released 1.2 million songs last year. 1.2 million. That's a lot of music. But when you look at those artists who choose to do it themselves using DIY platforms, as we call them, platforms such as uh, TuneCore, DistroKid, and up in Glasgow, we've got a really great one called EMU Bands as well. Those artists who are doing it themselves released 9.5 million jaw-dropping. That means there's a ratio of eight to one of artists doing it themselves as opposed to having a record label do it for them. And if music is a microcosm for the wider world, which I really do believe it is, if it's a first to suffer, first to recover, seeing that explosion in DIY artists, I think is a really important signal for the future of work. So I want to look at some of these eight lessons, Will, and let's start with the first one, which is build it and they will come, which is this kind of story of what happened in the music industry. Tell us a little bit again, remind us of that kind of U-curve and how high it was at the beginning, how low it got and how, how it's come out. But also the other thing is what, what ultimately when you stand back from this 20-year period of disruption, is it all upside in the end? Is everything better or have some things been lost along the way? Maybe a price worth paying, but are there things that have been lost? I don't know, it's a kind of strange example, but I kind of miss the top 20. I kind of miss that notion that there is a song that everybody knows is the most popular song and which we've completely lost now. I'm interested in your, your sense standing back as to what's been lost and what's been gained. But first of all, tell us briefly about the journey. Okay, the best way to capture just where the music industry was in the, in the, the late 90s and the cocaine capitalism in the late 90s. And remember, this is when artists like Robson and Jerome, which for me have zero talent, sold, I think, 7 million CDs to the British population. So the scale of excess, I captured it in the book beautifully, was, was record label executives used to sell CDs by the weight of pallet. That is, Matthew, I've got a pallet of CDs here. Your first question to me wasn't, what's on there? Is it Shania Twain? Is it, you know, is it Robson and Jerome? Your first question would be, how much does it weigh? Well, about 30 kilos. Great, I'll give you this much for it. 
<laughs> how much data analytics is in the weight of parallel CDs? You know, that's where it was. And remember, you know, whilst we can laugh at what went on back then, the business back then was worth way more than it is now. And that's before you adjust for inflation. So they were clearly doing something right. They were gatekeepers. They controlled the market. Then along came piracy, pulled the rug from under the feet of the music industry. And for those 10 years that followed, it was basically a fight for survival and a war against pirates. I'm always reminded of the Bill Hicks joke where he talks about George Bush, the first George Bush president, where he said, we are losing the war on drugs. Do you understand what that means? Do you see what that implies? That means there's a war going on and the people on drugs are winning it. <laughs> they're stoned, but they're smart. And I think something similar of, we are losing the war on piracy. Well, the consumer was telling you, you know, what they wanted was just to access music, not to transact to own, not to buy a CD and break their fingernails as they try to open it and listen to 11 songs and decide they only liked one. What a great use of $15 that was. They wanted to access all the world's repertoire. That's what they did on Napster, and that's what they did on Spotify. So there's a build and they come model there. You know, build something that's better than stealing, and the people came. And I think now we have 450 million people who have come on board to pay for something, which always has been and always will be free to consume. You, Matthew, and your members of the RSA could not pay a penny for music for the rest of their days and still listen to it on the radio for free. So it's a fascinating success story in terms of where we've got to now. And then you think about, you know, perhaps reflecting on what's been lost. One thing I do think has been lost, and I'm going to cite David Bowie, who we tragically lost just over five years ago, is when he said that music's going to become like water out of the tap, always there, always in the background. And I do believe, and I do agree with you, that we have lost that intimacy with music. doesn't mean it's lost forever, but... I do think that the, the next chapter in music's journey, and again, music mattering so much because it got there first, is a way of trying to rediscover that intimacy. Perhaps if you look at social networks like Clubhouse, that's an intimate gathering of people essentially on a shared phone call. The technology is not that revolutionary, but I think what you're seeing there is people want closed groups, not open groups, a quality preference versus a quantity preference. So I think, you know, Whilst the journey has been remarkable, I think the next chapter is to work out how you can have a more intimate relationship between the fan and the band. Yeah, that's fascinating. I remember even before COVID, in fact, a couple of years before COVID, going to a conference with kind of advertising agencies. And they were saying one of the big trends in advertising was that for, for a long time, it had all been about the individual, individual choice, individual autonomy, individual pleasure. And the shift now was to much more communitarian messages, that the messages consumers wanted to hear were to do with the way in which products brought people together, cared for people. So that is a kind of interesting shift, isn't it, from kind of the hyper-individualism being the big offer to people wanting brands that, that speak to a, a more collectivist yearning. Absolutely. And I think it's you're raising some really pertinent questions for where tech needs to go next. Again, like we talk about the new vine, perhaps that was seen as the Facebooks and the Twitters of this world. But then perhaps you're going to see a backlash to that where, no, I don't want to be on a platform with 1.6 billion people. I want to be on a platform with the 20, 30, or if you think about Robin Dunbar's concept, 150 true friends that I can maintain a reasonable relationship with. So it'll be fascinating to see if that trend does gather pace then how do you scale it? You know, technology can scale just about everything, but it cannot scale intimacy. And that's something I've learned over the past 15 years. Let's turn to another one of your areas, which is the attention economy. And some really powerful points you make about how the attention economy is different. It has different rules to the way we think about the normal economy. So talk to us about what you mean by the attention economy and some of its characteristics. 
Well, the chapter itself is called Paying Attention, and right there is a very interesting observation, which is the English language, which remains the most popular language in the world, just, if you do the maths. We say paying attention. We use a currency reference of pay, paying attention. School teachers say to their kids, pay attention. That doesn't happen in other European countries. You have offer, share, or give. If you look at Swedish, Spanish, or French, you know, it's different references. But in English, we use a monetary transaction of paying attention. It's valuable. It has some inherent value. And what I really want to address there is, you know, to stress that attention is the first fork in the road you've got to tackle before you do anything. Scaling a business, dealing with the government economic policy, advising people in a pandemic. How do you get their attention first? And if you can achieve that goal, then you can move to base two and deliver your message. And, you know, attention can be binary. You know, either you have it or you don't, or it can be stackable. You know, I could enjoy Spotify whilst watching Instagram, for example. What I really want to drive in on attention was the, the concept of contestability. Now, I don't want to lose credibility with your listeners, but I've only just discovered Breaking Bad, which is ironic because season one sees a Nokia phone. Who holds Nokia phones anymore? So I am allocating Netflix two hours, maybe three hours every evening trying to catch up on Breaking Bad so I can be socially responsible when we come out of the pandemic and talk with friends again. So Netflix wins two to three hours of my time which means everybody else loses. The RSA magazine loses. Spotify loses. Instagram loses. BBC Radio loses. Netflix monopolizes that time, which means everybody else who wants your attention has got increasingly less to compete for. If I can land one blow in that chapter is to get the readers to start understanding the contestability of attention, where one person's gain is another person's pain. And this is a question that came back to me over and again in the book, and, and, and I'm going to ask it to you two or three ways in, in the time that we've got, Will. But the question here is, is this good for us ultimately? Standing back from economics to ask a kind of broader question, in this world where we're overwhelmed by tides and tides and tides of content, where we're acutely aware, you know, I used to think that the kind of there's nothing on TV was a depressing thing to say. But I think probably the sense that there's far too much on TV and that I can't watch nearly, you know, I, I don't know what to watch and it's it's overwhelming to me. It's, it's probably a worse feeling. There's, there's work, quite a lot of work that's been done, Barry Schwartz most notably, about the way that too much choice makes us miserable. And you, and you talk about that. So this attention economy, it's not necessarily one that contributes to our well-being, is it? Well, the example I always try to build off there is, is, is something that I bet you that you haven't done and I haven't done in ages, which is to gaze out of a window. We used to do that all the time. I mean, I spent a good chunk of my life on the train between London and Edinburgh, and a lot of that journey pre-smartphone was spent gazing out the window bored. We don't do that anymore. Well, children's summer holidays, Will. I mean, you know, <laughs> summer I loved summer holiday because there was no school, but a lot of the time it was just boring. Yeah. <laughs> Rather than gazing out of a glass window, we gaze into a different piece of glass called our phones. And it's, it's, it's fascinating to think about how we used to have that surplus of attention to use the economic expression then. And now we have a deficit now. But I think one very quick example I can give your audience here to think about the productivity of attention, if that's the right expression to use, is to go back to the browser wars. So we're going to go back to the late 1990s here, where a little known company called Google was beginning to scale and they're in tough competition with Yahoo. Now, Yahoo's approach to attention was you would visit their browser page and they would try and keep you there for as long as possible. Time spent was a positive indicator because you would look at Yahoo Finance, maybe check Yahoo Mail, and also search whatever you went to look for. 
Google, on the other hand, said, we're going to do it the opposite way around. We're going to have a, it's a negative. That is, time spent is bad for this company. We want you to land on Google, search for what you want, and get you to where you are as fast as possible. We want to be as small a part of your life as possible, so you use us more and more. And of course, with the benefit of hindsight, we know who won that battle of the browsers, Yahoo kind of sharpened and nosedived into extinction, whereas Google went on to kind of rule the world. But it's a very interesting approach that Google had to attention back then, which I think we can draw from now, which is how do we make ourselves more productive with attention? And anyone who has spent hours on call to Virgin Media during the pandemic trying to get broadband fixed will know what I'm talking about. But it, this is a psychological challenge for us, isn't it? Because there is a precedent, and it's not a comforting precedent, which is that human beings evolved. You know, 99% of our evolution was at a time when food was scarce. And so that gives us an instinct, which is to eat as much as we can, because you don't know where the next meal is going to come from. You then move into a society where food is plentiful and full of sugar and fat, and then you have an obesity epidemic. Is there a parallel? We've developed in a world where there wasn't enough to fill our attention. So we have to develop ways of dealing with boredom or ways of entertaining ourselves. We now live in this world where there's a surplus of attention and we're going to have to find the capacity to deal with this, aren't we? And that's that's going to be difficult for us because we, we have not evolved with that capacity. Yeah, it's ironic how you described the sort of the junk food analogy there and talking about obesity. Obesity, of course, is a huge problem. Two thirds of the population is about to become four fifths. Boom, boom, quick joke. But no, people ask me, they say, why don't you use Facebook or Twitter or Instagram? Instagram. I don't, sorry. The reason why is I just see it as junk food. I just don't think that's a healthy use of my attention. So I do think we can use a food analogy to work our way through this. What's a better diet if we keep with this analogy here, keep with the metaphor for balancing our attention needs? And would a little bit of boredom help us? You know, it's a very interesting topic. And you know, I think there maybe is a responsibility on the tech side to be aware of this. I used in the book The Tragedy of the Commons very quickly. I'm very close to a Scottish fishing village in the borders. And, you know, what happened in the North Sea? Everybody was overfishing, so we extracted this scarce resource called fish stocks. And now there's more fishing museums than there are fishing boats in my village. I think we can apply the tragedy of the commons when we're discussing attention and say, is there a responsibility? And it's something that the RSA would be well-equipped to pick up on. Is there a responsibility to manage our attention better because we have this tragedy situation where everybody is overcompeting for a very scarce resource? Let's move to the last of the lessons that I want to pick out in our conversation, which is this, what matters most is often being measured least, which you also link to a couple of big ideas. One is, you know, you need to count the zeros, you need to count the negatives, not just the positives. And also this distinction you want to make between big data and thick data. And it feels like a big part of your career has been about questioning data that is chucked at you by marketeers and advertisers and hucksters of various kinds, and to get behind that and to use common sense to to distinguish between what really matters. Thank you so much. Those kind words. Um, with what matters most is measured least. I mean, let's just use a very, very pertinent example. How much has Zoom been part of our lives since <laughs> a year to the day? huge part of our lives. Where does Zoom sit in the Office of National Statistics Newport office in terms of contribution to GDP? Is it even there? We look back a second. If you think about Wikipedia, it's the sum of all the world's knowledge, does no environmental damage, and adds nothing to gross domestic product. You can think of lots of things which are not the sum of all the world's knowledge, do terrible environmental damage, and add lots to gross domestic product. What are we actually trying to measure? And the one thing that really infuriates me about the way that your question has been framed here has just made me think off the hoof for a second is, how would you want to measure the recovery? I could do a report for the Royal Society of the Arts, which measures the recovery by looking at pollution levels. 
great. And I wouldn't be wrong. Hey, Matthew, pollution levels are now back to where they were in February 2019. We're good to go. We're back to where we thought we were going to be. That is not the recovery that we want. So what matters most is what gets measured least. And I think a lot of what influences our lives is not being covered in government economic statistics, and especially in tech, where a lot of what we consume is free. And if you're not paying for it, they're going to struggle to capture it. So, yeah, with government, there's a lot of lessons in that book for government. I mean, in my four brief years as a government economist, I got staggered trying to understand how things were measured. You know, you've done special reports in the RSA on the housing crisis. How does housing get measured in government statistics? You know, do people understand what this concept of imputed rents really means? No. Should they? I would argue yes. Why? Because it's guesswork to estimate the value of housing in the, the, the economy of Great Britain. And it makes up 10% of our economy. And it's just done through guesswork. We'll just guess the sample survey of people who guess how much they pay themselves to live in their own homes. And we'll just plug that in and call that an economic figure. So... Yeah, whenever you look under the hood of government statistics, like with anything in life, the closer you look, the more warts you see. And trust me, in terms of trying to measure the digital economy in our lives, there's a lot of warts that we need to untangle. Yeah, I mean, I, I love this point about, about big data versus thick data, which is my particular obsession is, is public opinion polls, where, you know, there are unbelievable, I mean, I don't know what, there's the exponential rise in the number of people undertaking opinion polls, <laughs> you, you know, and they suffer from two problems, which you identify in them. But one is they're often very methodologically problematic because the sample's just not big enough because the questions aren't clear. Agreed, agreed. And, but agreed. secondly, there's an even more fundamental problem, which is that what we say when we're asked a question about something we don't know a great deal about in terms of our top of the head <laughs> opinion is almost all was completely different to the view we would have if we spent just a few minutes thinking about it or talking to anybody who knows something about it or having a conversation about it. So you're measuring a particular type of very superficial opinion in a very superficial kind of way. But every single day, the newspapers and everywhere else and Twitter and everything is full of opinion polls saying 73% of the population think this, as if that in itself should tell us anything at all. I know, I know. You, <laughs> these are great points, Matthew. I mean, one point that jumps out to mind here is the general election. Oh, God, I can't even remember the year it took place, but it was the election where David Cameron won and Ed Miliband lost. In that election, running up to it, all the opinion polls said Ed Miliband by a margin or a hung parliament. Everyone said it. Nobody called out David Cameron by a governing majority. And in terms of, you know, you said measuring the zeros, not the ones, the cause of that opinion poll error was not the opinion polls. There was lots of polls done which had David Cameron by a governing majority. They just didn't publish them. Why? Because there's this crazy herd-like behavior of like, I'm at Murray and you're at YourGov. It's like, well, looks like the previous poll said Ed Miliband by a majority. So we've got to apply and comply and sort of buckle up to that trend. So, oh God, I got I got this crazy outlier result here which says David Cameron by a governing majority. I'll just bury that and do another opinion poll till I get the result I want. So the zeros were the opinion polls which had David Cameron by a governing majority, but they were never published. So we're making a judgment, and I use this word judgment a lot when I discuss government statistics. They are just judgments. We're making a judgment based on opinion polls that got published. So before we even get to the issues that you correctly raise, we also have to take a step back and say, I'm only getting to discuss an opinion poll that they've decided to publish. I'm not going to get to discuss an opinion poll that was buried because it was such an outlier. It would have done a, a brand reputational damage to that particular pollster. Two kind of final things I want to explore. 
and I guess these are almost criticisms. And it's actually, it's a compliment to the book that I want to criticise it because that's how much I engage with it. The first is, I think you're a bit complacent about monopolies. You know, you, you absolutely argue that the way monopolies work in a network economy is very different and that some of the traditional threats of monopolies, and particularly the idea that monopoly is necessarily bad for consumers, that this is problematic. And I get that and you, you argue it well. But nevertheless, it seems to me that when you give any very, very large company an enormous amount of power, a huge share of the market, there are things there that you one should worry about. One is just the level of the data they've got and the power that that data gives them, not just to do what they're doing now, but to do other things as well, maybe even some things we'd rather they didn't do, but also inertia. The, the way in which when large private sector companies almost become like utilities, you have the same characteristic that you have with our utilities, which is that we carry on using them because it just feels so difficult to do anything else. Okay, so I, I was prepared for this question. And the reason why is, as a first-time author who's completely out of his depth, who's been in the back cave for the past 18 months working <laughs> away, I'm now coming up to Aaron. And yesterday I got my first book review. And I'll be frank, the first thing I did was run to the bathroom and throw up because I've never had a book review before. <laughs> then I decided to read it. And there was a similar question of, well, where's he going on his stance on monopolies? And it's, it, it's a view that I have and... You know, it's going to be a challenging one for the reader, but let's just break it down for a second. Let's listen to the language that you used. You used plural. You put an S on the end of the word monopoly. Four times. I counted it in your question. Four times. You can play it back. So we're not talking about a monopoly. We're talking about monopolies. That's interesting, isn't it? You know, it's all these tech monopolies. And we need to break them up. Well, there's all these tech monopolies... That's not a monopoly. That's perhaps an oligopoly, or you can pick whatever wonky word you want to use, but that's not one because we're using the plural. So I think the first observation is <laughs> I've got a 100% strike record of people pulling me up on this point, but sticking the letter S on the end of the word monopoly. And I think that's fascinating. So we're going to use a framework from the past, the old vine, to attack a new model by sticking an S on the word of monopoly. We're already in an anomaly land here. And secondly, just very quickly, that chapter is dedicated to a wonderful political fellow. I don't know whether he was a member of the Royal Society, but Screaming Lord Such from the Monster Raving Looney Party, he had this wonderful policy proposal, which was we need two competition authorities. I thought that was fantastic. How can you have a monopoly competition authority entrusted with upholding competition? It doesn't work. You need to have competition in upholding competition. Third point is just to remind ourselves what makes these monopolies, to reiterate the plural, these monopolies different is they do not compete by restricting output and hiking costs, which is what Adam Smith predicted in the late 1700s. They often compete to the large part by expanding output and reducing or even eliminating costs. So if you're going to incur £9,000 in student debt studying at LSE this year, you're going to be taught about a monopoly framework that doesn't apply to technology, period. It just doesn't work. I mean, we can discuss monopsony, which is a different concept, but for the time being, let's stick with monopoly and understand that doesn't fit. That's a square peg in a round hole in understanding tech. Final point, and this is perhaps more subjective than objective, is I truly believe that these monopolies, keep it plural, compete for convenience. That's how they win, by offering more convenient products to the consumer. That is different from the CMA regulating Tesco's and mergers and supermarkets or telecoms or Ofcom. 
you know, they're not necessarily competing for convenience. They're competing for you know, a different KPI or a different objective. But they're not offering the same convenience that we have. I mean, Ofcom regulates Virgin Media. The thing doesn't work and it takes a lot of money off my hands. Nobody regulates Facebook. It doesn't take any money off my hands and it works perfectly well. You know, fundamental questions about if you're competing for convenience, not cost, I'm not sure you can use the monopoly framework to tackle this issue. I'm not saying there's not an issue to be tackled. I'm just saying that old vine is not fit for purpose. Let's take a bit of this thinking and, and into my final question, which is one of the reasons I worry about monopolies, and I recognize the paradox of having a plural form of the word monopoly, but one of my concerns is just the sheer power which exists in the hands of people who are ultimately not accountable to anyone else other than their shareholders or to their in- investors. And that kind of links to the question for me, which is, in all of this, Will, where do we have a conversation about what we actually want? Because I think one of the things about economists on the whole is that they are pretty sceptical about democracy. They've read their public choice theory and they think, look, markets are very efficient they're brilliant ways of combining lots and lots of individual choices to maximise welfare, whereas democracy is messy and irrational and often corrupt and ultimately involves one group of people being able to force another group of people to do things. But yet, it seems to me a healthy society has to find some way of balancing democratic choice with economic dynamism, technological innovation. Otherwise, what technology does, it takes you to places you didn't actually want to go And I'll give you a couple of small examples of this. You know, the regulatory burdens in France may be problematic, but they're also part of the reason why in France, when you go to any little village or town, there's a little bakery, there's a little butcher. They've got life in their little towns because of the way in which their systems, I don't know if they still had at least a minimum baguette price in France in order that local bakers should stay open or take you know, local journalism, you know, that we've lost. So we've almost lost that capacity to have local journalists who dig into things because the model, the market model for local news has kind of disappeared. So I know it's a big question, Will, but it is the final question. So I use up what's left of your kind of brain power. As an economist, how do we get a balance between the dynamism of markets and technological innovation and also a kind of democratic conversation about ultimately what kind of world do we want to live in? Wow. I would say that if I can build a, a three-point answer to this big one, this, this TKO to my jaw, Matthew, I think the first thing to say is the government needs to catch up. It really needs to catch up. I'll give you one very good tangible example. The, the CMA, the Competition Market Authority, which is you know particular to your point, is now building out a data science team in 2021. Great. And I happen to know some of the people going in there, and there's some really fantastic talent joining the data science team at the CMA. Fantastic news. But it is 2021. If you could roll back the hands of time, Matthew, when would you want to have a regulator that was efficient, proficient, should I say, in data science? I think the answer would have been perhaps 2004. So, you know, we are playing a game of catch up. The second point is to go back to measurement, a fundamental observation I bring at the very start of the book is just what Spotify got to see when we started measuring consumption as opposed to transactions. And I'm going to apply it to government very briefly, which is, you know, instead of selling CDs by the weight of pallet, we got to see how the content was being consumed by time of day, by source of streams, by age and gender of the person streaming, by IP address of where they were streaming. 
all of this data on consumption as opposed to transaction. The point being, you give up looking at transactional data when you have something better. Now, let's take the car industry. Let's say Matthew is the Minister for Transport and you want to brief the Prime Minister on the state of transportation in the country. And one of your big statistics is going to be car sales last quarter, which actually means the quarter before because that's how they collect the data. So you're going to say car sales are up 2%. Therefore, the economy is booming and transportation is on mend. Pointless. That's a transactional data point. What we need to learn about is how are those cars being used and for what purpose are they being used? Perhaps car sales are up because more Uber-type cars are being purchased but because people are going to be using them as businesses to drive people who previously purchased them as an ownership model. You know, <laughs> father says to a 17-year-old son, what do you want for your birthday, a new car? No, I want an Uber account, Dad. I don't want to own cars. I want to have someone drive the car for me, make or buy again. So, you know, you can think of car sales data as a great example of why am I looking at transactional data? Why am I obsessing about transactional data? Why don't I look for something more meaningful, which is how are those cars being used? For what purpose are they being used? And that requires a lot of data, and you're right to flag the data issues around that. Third point, and it's captured in my book, is to quote somebody who's spoken at the RSA, Andy Haldane, the chief economist of the Bank of England. And very quickly, I think back in 2018, Andy Haldane gave a press briefing where he said, uh, I'm going to use Spotify data to predict the next recession. QPRSHIT storm. Spotify's trading private data with the Bank of England, which is going to affect the cost of your mortgage. Complete nonsense. None of that was happening. What happened was Andy had read a very intelligent paper by some data scientists using Pandora data to look at sentiment analysis. And we got Andy to visit us at the Spotify office. We'd had rock stars come to play there, like Coldplay and Megan Trainer, but we'd never had a rock star member of the Monetary Policy Committee. We had to explain to him there was a few PR issues regarding his comment about using Spotify data to predict the next recession. But then we, you know, once we got the apology, we asked, well, what was your thinking? And he said the following, and I really want the RSA membership to listen to this point. He said, as it currently stands, I have to set interest rates on Thursday based on some manufacturing data from Solihull. That's all I've got. Manufacturing orders. That's it, people. Around this time, 2018, if you remember, Brexit was really looking a bit wobbly. Where are we going to leave? How are we going to leave? Was it going to be a hard Brexit? I mean, I feel sorry for all the European people in this country who weren't allowed to vote on the future of Britain and Europe. How are they feeling? And Andy made this point where he said, I am more interested in anxiety. And everybody in the room leaned forward. What did you just say? Anxiety. I think anxiety is going to have a far bigger role in what interest rates might do to the economy than some manufacturing orders in Solly Hull. Okay, this sounds a very reasonable point. And he said, I would look anywhere and everywhere for signals of anxiety. And I might find that in people's listening habits. And that's why I said what I said. And I have to applaud that type of thinking where he was letting go of the old vine, which we still do, PMI surveys and manufacturing orders to determine the state we're in and trying to reach out to a new vibe, which is what matters far more than the manufacturing orders in Solly Hull, is people's emotions. You know, that's what's going to react to interest rates, not manufacturing orders. Maybe to wrap that story up, I gave Andy a fascinating data point this time last year. It's the anniversary for it. Matthew, do you know what song was peaking on streaming services this time last year as the world went into lockdown? No. It was the REM song, It's the End of the World as We Know It and I Feel Fine. I'm pleased to tell your readers that that song is now back to its pre-pandemic level, so we clearly are getting out of the woods. Fantastic. Well, as I'm sure listeners will appreciate from every answer that you've given me, Tiles on Economics is a 
lively, fascinating, and well, it's just great fun as a book. So I can strongly recommend it. Will, thanks so much for spending some time with us. Thank you so much. It's great to be part of the RSA. Really proud of my membership. That's it for this episode of Bridges to the Future. We'll be back soon with more insights and analysis. But if you've enjoyed this conversation, I'd be so grateful if you could rate and review it in your podcast app. But for now, thanks from me, Matthew Taylor. This was a Tempo and Talker production for the RSA. We are the RSA. We enable the game changers of today to shift systems, challenge norms, and create impact where it's needed most. Visit thersa.org slash approach to find out how. And let's make change happen. 